0: Please join me in prayer. Dear Lord, I first want to lift up an urgent prayer request from our sister, Janie. Um, God, we pray for her niece, little Gracie, only 18 months old. Yesterday, she was admitted into the hospital, and she's been in and out of the hospital because of serious issues. She already has two open-heart surgeries since birth. God, we know that you are mighty to save. We ask for your healing hands on Gracie's body and that you would guide the doctors to make the right decisions for her treatment. God, she is so little. We lift her up into your hands and we ask you to heal her. God, we also pray for Don Burgess's family. Please comfort them in their time of grief. They miss him so much. But God, we also thank you for his life that was so well lived, for how he was so dedicated to serving you, God, and how he had a heart that was your heart for his people. God, we also lift up Um, the recent shootings from the July 4th parade. The world grieves, we grieve over such evil. But God, I know that you are working, you transform hearts, you heal communities. And I know that you will continue to do your work until the very end. God, we also pray for this coming week, for the youth who are going on their river camp trip. Uh, God, I just ask that it would be a time of rich fellowship, of great joy, that you would keep them safe and healthy, and most of all, that they would experience your love during that time. God, we lift up these prayers to you Um, joy, but also loss of um, sadness and fears with new life. And uh, God, we just lift it all up to you, into your hands. Thank you for how you hear us and how you understand our hearts. We thank you for how our hope is in you and this hope does not disappoint. In your name, amen. Now I'd like to invite Emma Stacks. Come on up. She's going to do our scripture reading
1: today. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast on that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, and the new from the old, a worse hair is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But a new wine is for fresh wineskins. Mark 2, 18 through 22.
0: Thank you, Emma. Now it's time for the children and youth to go to their Sunday morning groups. Kids, if you've checked in, you can head out the back right door with your teachers and look for your age groups. Look at them go. <laughs> And youth, you can head out with Becca. And now is a good time, if any of you have missed getting your communion elements, you can feel free to go get them over there at the back. Great, and now I'm gonna invite Eugene to give today's sermon.
2: Let's all give Gwen a round of applause for her first time hosting. Thank you, Gwen. Good morning, brothers and sisters. It's good to be with you this morning. Uh, this is the sixth and final Sunday in my second series on the Apostle Paul's letter to the Colossians. There will be a third series, God willing, but that won't start until next year, God willing. <laughs> so, but I just wanted to take this time today to thank you all for Receiving these sermons, receiving the sermons in this series in particular with such grace and such openness, thank you for the conversations that we've had in the breezeway and out here in the courtyard. Thank you for the emails and the encouragements, as well as the questions and the sharing of your thoughts and ponderings on the letter to the Colossians. I'd love to keep hearing more about what you take away from these messages as well as what you see in the word of God yourself, so please don't hesitate to keep that stuff coming. Uh, But yes, this will be the last sermon in this series until we resume in January, so sit tight, we'll be back in Colossians 3 in 2023. (laughs) Uh, But yes, over the last five weeks leading up to today, we have learned and we have relearned a few things about the way of Christ. As people who are centered on Christ, We've been asking the question, what does it mean to walk in the way of Christ? And we have learned a few things about that. First, that the way of Christ is a lifelong journey, not a single decision. Second, the way of Christ is full of trustworthy guides to help us along. Third, the way of Christ is open to everyone, regardless of our pasts. Fourth, the way of Christ changes us from the inside out. And fifth, the way of Christ, the third way of the cross, will take us into the glory of the new creation. This morning we have one more lesson to add to our list, and that is that the way of Christ must always be reconstructed. The way of Christ must always be reconstructed. Let's dive into our passage for today, Colossians chapter 2, verses 16-23. through 23. At long last, we've arrived at the end of the second chapter of Colossians. It's here that we find Paul's most complete description of the false teachers that have been lurking in the background of this series. So without any further ado, finally we get to ask and actually get an answer to this question, who were these false teachers? What were they teaching? Our passage this morning offers us four clues, two of which appear in verse 16 right off the bat. Verse 16, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. The false teachers were concerned with matters of food and drink. I know that many of us are concerned with matters of food and drink. I am one of those. But not in this way. We're talking about the observation of dietary restrictions as part of their religious practice. The false teachers were also concerned with the observance of scheduled rituals and holidays, annual festivals, monthly new moon celebrations, and weekly Sabbath days. Now from these two clues, especially the mention of the Sabbath day, we might conclude that the false teachers were simply Jews, and their false teaching was just Judaism. But in verse 18 we find two more clues that seem to point away from a traditional Judaism. Verse 18, let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions. The false teachers apparently practiced a form of asceticism, which is the belief that extreme self-deprivation would lead to spiritual enlightenment. The less you ate, the less you owned, the less comfort you experienced, the more spiritual you would become, or so the false teachers taught. Though we do occasionally hear calls to fast, for example, asceticism of this kind is never encouraged in the Bible. The false teachers, however, saw it as a means to spiritual enlightenment, and they believed that spiritual enlightenment would come in the form of visionary experiences. The false teachers boasted of having encounters with spiritual beings, going on in detail about visions in which they worshipped angels. The worship of angels is a clear violation of the first of the Ten Commandments, you shall have no other gods before me. So this is a problem. But to the false teachers, these visions, even their angel worship, this was proof of their spirituality. So what do we have when we pull all these details together? Well, biblical scholars are unsure, I even asked Bernard about it, but they don't know of any religion, any one religion that explicitly combined elements of Jewish dietary restrictions and holidays with the visionary worship of angels. That said, it's really not that hard to imagine a group of Jews experimenting with asceticism and feeling like they had stumbled onto a greater spirituality, these sorts of spirituality through self discipline religions have always existed. From time immemorial, people have believed that if they could simply do enough, if they could simply say enough or deny themselves enough, they could earn the right to see God or become more spiritually attuned. It's not a stretch to suggest that some Jews in Colossae took the dietary restrictions and holidays in the Law of Moses and augmented them with asceticism in an attempt to gain deeper access to spiritual realities. So we have some idea of who the false teachers were from our passage, but we also get a sense of the false teachers' strategy for recruitment. Once again, verses 16 and 18. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. Let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and worship of angels. Going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. If these false teachers were running a seminar for other false teachers, like, I don't know if there's a school for false teaching, I don't know if there's a series of credits that you need to pass, but if these false teachers were offering a credited seminar for other false teachers, they'd present their strategy as the ABCCCs. Always be criticizing, condemning, and coercing. This was their strategy against the Colossian believers. They passed judgment on them, criticizing them for not doing enough. Then they disqualified them, condemning them for their spiritual deficiency as proven by their lack of supernatural experiences. And finally, they insisted on compliance with their religious beliefs, attempting to coerce them into participating in their, in their asceticism and worship of angels. The ABCCCs, it's simple. It's simple. And backing up this strategy was the false teachers' visionary experiences. Doubtless, these visions impressed the Colossian believers and made them question whether they truly had everything they needed in Christ. Or perhaps these false teachers weren't false at all and they could offer more than what Christ could. Paul, however, was not at all impressed. By these false teachers. And he gave four reasons why. We find the first reason in verse 17. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Paul was not impressed by the false teacher's devotion to Jewish dietary restrictions and ritual calendar. Why? Because he saw these restrictions and rituals for what they were, a shadow of the things to come. Paul saw the old covenant as a shadow cast by the reality, the substance, literally the body in Greek, of Christ Just as a person standing in sunlight casts a shadow, and just as that shadow has no substance in itself, but points to the body that casts it, so the old covenant, the law of Moses, points to Christ. Now we'll come back to this point in a moment, but let's move on to Paul's second against the false teachers in verse 18. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason, by his sensuous mind. Now this last phrase is what's important here, and it might sound like Paul was insulting the false teachers. But there's more than just playground name-calling going on here. In calling the false teachers puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, Paul implied two things about them. First, their apparent spirituality was only that, an appearance. They were puffed up, in contrast to being truly grown. Verse 19, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head, that is Christ, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. The false teachers were proud of their apparent spirituality, but they lacked the transformation, the heart circumcision made possible only in Christ. And so Paul was not impressed. Second, the phrase puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind also indicates that the asceticism by which the false teachers achieved their apparent spirituality, this was really just another form of sensuality. Now we often associate sensuality with sex and drugs and rock and roll. Maybe not James, but you know. But the Bible also talks about sensuality as an over-reliance on our senses. A tendency to act purely on base instinct, driven by feelings both physical and emotional. The false teachers' asceticism appeared to be very spiritual. They denied themselves pleasures and comforts weaker people couldn't do without. But in exchange for those pleasures and comforts, they were filled with pride. They were filled with arrogance, self-righteousness, and narcissism, all of which are just as sensual as sexual sin. And so Paul was not impressed. But their attempt to use the Old Covenant restrictions and rituals to prove their spirituality, that did disturb Paul. He addressed this in his third point, verses 20 to 22. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. Now you'll have to bear with me as this next part, this part here is the most complicated part of this passage. You might recognize the phrase elemental spirits of the world from Colossians 2:8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. A couple of weeks ago I mentioned that the phrase the elemental spirits of the world would probably be better translated as the elements of the world. The Greek word translated as elemental spirits is "stoikeia." It refers to the basic elementary parts of a thing which is an extremely abstract definition. And that's the problem. The word can be used in so many ways that it does not have a consistent English translation in the few places that it appears in the New Testament. But in the seven places where the word was used, four of them were by Paul, two times here in Colossians and two, ta- two more times in Galatians. And it turns out when he used the word in Galatians, it was in a broadly similar context as when he used it in Colossians. So if we compare these uses, we can determine at least what Paul meant when he used the word. So let's take a look at Galatians 4, 1-5. He wrote, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. What's going on here? Well, Paul was comparing God's plan to redeem humankind to a father's plan to make his son the heir of his estate. In those days, a father would place his son under the care and instruction of guardians and managers until the time came for him to receive his inheritance. Before that time, the son was no different from a slave regarding the inheritance. Paul went on, in the same way we also were enslaved to the stoicheia of the world. Paul explained that sinful humankind was likewise placed under a guardian instructor, what Paul described as the stoicheia of the world, the elementary principles, as the ESV puts it. Paul explained what this stoicheia of the world was through an important parallel in verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Note what Paul said in parallel to the phrase "the stoicheia of the world." It's the law. To be enslaved to the stoicheia of the world was to be under the law. The law was our guardian instructor, tasked with teaching us the depth of our sin, the depth of our unbelief, the depth of our rebellion against God. This was to prepare us for the arrival of God's son, born of woman, born under the law, who would redeem those who were under the law and make possible our adoption as sons through the forgiveness of sins. And so you see, brothers and sisters, Paul saw the old covenant, the law, as an element, a stoicheia of of this world part of the old creation, part of the old age. But now that Christ has come, the old covenant's role as guardian instructor is complete. As part of the old creation, it has been surpassed by the new covenant and the already but not yet new creation. As Paul had said before, the old covenant and its rituals are merely a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Now that Christ has come, why hold on to the elements of the old creation, the stoicheia of this world, including the law? That's not to say that there aren't things we can learn from the law, but why hold on to its rituals? Why hold on to its restrictions, its symbols, its traditions? Or as Paul put it, if with Christ... You died to the elements of the world. Why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. And now we can see, perhaps, the real problem with the false teachers' use of the old covenant. They were using it according to human precepts and teachings. The false teachers were basing their spirituality on a covenant that was never meant to make anyone actually more spiritual, more righteous, more acceptable to God. The law was only intended to illustrate for us what a life of love for, trust in, and obedience to God would look like. It was just meant to illustrate this for us, and in so doing, to show us how desperately we needed a new covenant that could transform us so that we could actually do it. Yet like the generations of Israel before them, the false teachers did not understand their need for the new covenant, and they believed that with a little more effort, a little more discipline, they could make the Old Covenant work for them in a way it was never intended to, in a way that was according to their human precepts and teachings, their human ideas of righteousness, of godliness, of what it means to follow God. And that brings us to Paul's concluding fourth point in verse 23. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. The false teacher's devotion may have impressed some people, but not Paul, because in the end, the false teachers were no less hateful, no less angry, no less insecure, no less impatient, no less selfish, no less greedy, no less lustful. They were incapable of stopping the indulgence of the flesh because they had not received the Holy Spirit through the new covenant of Christ. The false teacher's false teaching, however impressive it may have appeared, was nothing more than another religious dead end. And that closes the book on the false teachers. Paul's conclusion was that the Colossian believers should dismiss their teachings as offering them nothing they didn't already have in Christ to say nothing of their inability to actually deliver anything they promised. No, they had all they needed in Christ. Following the way of Christ was the better choice in every way. But part of me wonders, didn't the Colossian believers already know everything Paul reminded them of so far in this letter? We've brought up this point before, but it's at this point in the letter where it stands an even greater stark reality. Didn't they already know that the new covenant of Christ surpasses the old covenant? Didn't they already know they didn't need to return to the rituals and restrictions and traditions and symbols of the old covenant to draw near to God? Didn't they already have his Holy Spirit? Weren't they already experiencing the circumcision of their hearts, the transformation from the inside out to become people of faith, hope, and love? So why were they still tempted? Given all of this, given all that they knew and all they were experiencing, why were they still tempted to follow these false teachers? What was so alluring about their message that they needed Epaphras to ask Paul to write them a letter concerning things they probably already knew? Well, I believe something was at work among the Colossian believers, something that may be at work among us as well something that makes all people vulnerable to false teaching, whatever form it may take. What was it that the false teachers ultimately were offering the Colossian believers? Beneath the promise of greater spirituality, beneath the promise of encounters with angels, beneath these things was the same promise offered by many false teachings, many false religions, many of the falsehoods of the enemy, and that is the promise of control. Control over your spirituality, control over your relationship with God, control over how good you feel about how religious you are. The false teachers in Colossae offered the Colossian believers a sense of control through their restrictions, rituals, asceticism, and visions. Restrictions and rules to simplify decisions. Rituals and routines to provide a sense of predictability and safety asceticism and self-discipline to give shape to their days and definition to their pursuits, visions, and experiences to mark out their progress on the road to spiritual achievement. With these restrictions, rituals, asceticism, and visions, the Colossian believers would never have to feel lost or confused directionless or unsure. They would never have to wonder what God was asking of them because it was already decided. It was already settled. The lists were out there. Get a copy of For Yourself. They would never have to feel the discomfort of a real question, the disorientation of an existential crisis the disturbing self-examination of a liminal space where you're not sure where you've come from and you're not sure where you're going and you're not sure where you are. If they followed the false teachers, they would never have to really look inside and wonder what's underneath the surface. They could just point to the rituals. They could just point to the traditions, point to the boxes that they had already checked that day and call themselves good. What the false teachers offered the Colossians was a shortcut around the hard parts of the way of Christ. And there are many hard parts. The way of Christ requires us to examine ourselves from time to time. To look into the depths of who we are. To ask hard questions and to hear hard answers. And the way of Christ, the third way of the cross, can look different day to day. The Spirit's leading in our lives is often unpredictable. Where and how and whom he asks us to love, this can change at a moment's notice or not at all for years, decades even. It's difficult to be on the way of Christ. Watching and waiting and unsure of what the next day will hold, unsure of what step to take next, having to think and reflect and ponder, and even still, after all that, to feel uncertain. (laughs) Yet it is in those times of uncertainty those stretches of doubt and disturbance, those periods of confusion where we don't even know what we feel about what's happening to us, let alone what God wants us to do with it. It's in those times of existential crisis where God grows our faith the most where he cuts away the biggest calluses covering our hearts, where he exposes the most poisonous lies undergirding our thoughts and heals us with a clearer view of his goodness and a deeper trust in his faithfulness and a higher hope in his promises. It is when we are brought to the threshold of who we are, the liminal space of self-examination, that we cover the greatest distance on the way of Christ. But rituals and restrictions and rules and traditions, compliance to these things is easier. Observance is simpler. Focusing on accomplishing the next task, it just just feels better. (laughs) It feeds our sense of accomplishment and progress. It assures us that we are good and doing well. And is that really such a bad thing? Brothers and sisters, don't get me wrong. We need rituals and routines and traditions and symbols. We need them. We need them the way buildings need scaffolding while they're being built, the way trees need to be staked and tied so they can grow tall and straight, the way a child needs training wheels mounted to the sides of their bike while they are learning how to balance. I had mine until I was nine. (laughs) One day my dad just ripped them off and said, you gotta figure this out, Eugene. (laughs) I hit a mailbox at the end of our driveway. It was a learning experience. (laughs) But you see, brothers and sisters, sometimes we mistake observing these rituals, restrictions, rules, and traditions. We mistake observing these with spiritual growth itself. Sometimes observing rituals and traditions can become a replacement for genuine trust, love, and obedience. Sometimes we use rituals and traditions not to create space for growth, but as proof that we've grown enough, that we're good enough, that we have accomplished enough, that we've progressed enough on the way of Christ. And I would humbly submit, brothers and sisters, that churches like ours, long-running churches like ours, might be particularly vulnerable to this temptation. Long-running churches face the peculiar challenge of dealing with their own apparent success. They've found a way of doing church that works for their members and even draws visitors into their services. They've figured out the right language to use to maximize the clarity of their messages. They've struck the right balance between sermon length and singing time. They've found ways to support relationship building within their congregations and evangelism outside of them. In short, long-running churches seem to have things figured out. And that makes them vulnerable to the reductionism we've been talking about today. When a church feels like it has figured out the definitive way to follow Christ, there comes with that confidence an inertia, a resistance to change, that can leave the church stranded in the past, worshiping its own success, along with whatever system, whatever approach, whatever religion they credit with achieving it. Now to be clear, I'm not saying that this is where everyone at PBCC is presently. On the contrary, I believe God has been awakening in us a new openness, a new openness to and curiosity about what he has in store for PBCC, what new paths he is leading us into, and what old paths he wants us to explore in new ways. But we shouldn't take this openness and curiosity for granted, brothers and sisters. The temptation to settle into our own perceived spiritual success and to calcify our methods into a religion devoid of the Spirit is always, always very real. This is essentially what Christ faced in his dealings with the Pharisees. Their authority as teachers of God's Word enabled them to develop an entire system of restrictions and rituals that define spirituality for their followers. But Christ did not participate in their system. He presented an entirely different understanding of the Old Covenant. This disagreement led to encounters like the one recorded in Mark 2, 18-22, which Emma read for us before the sermon. Going back to that, now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? The people were wondering why Christ and his disciples weren't participating in the rituals that defined for them good religion. And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. With a cryptic reference to his eventual death and resurrection and ascension, Christ suggested that rituals only have meaning according to their context. No ritual is eternal, but each is simply a tool to help people process their present reality. Christ went on, no one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it. The new from the old and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. A patch made of unshrunk cloth will shrink over time and tear the old fabric around it. So too will new wine expand as it ferments beyond the capacity of old, rigid wineskins, bursting them and ruining everything. Christ's point was clear. The way he was inviting others to follow could not be contained within the restrictions and rituals and symbols of the old covenant. It was never meant to be. A new covenant was on the way. A new covenant was needed. More than that, new hearts were required, hearts that were willing to go beyond the ritual and the restriction, beyond the symbol and the tradition, beyond what had come before and into what was coming and had now come. And so, like the prophets before Him, Christ spent His earthly ministry tearing down the false religion that had been built up around the old covenant. The Pharisees had built a false religion around the law of Moses that obscured its true purpose and Christ wanted to demolish what they foolishly built, to deconstruct their false religion and to reconstruct the way to God around Himself, the one to whom the old covenant had always pointed. Brothers and sisters, whether in the first century or the 21st, there will always be the temptation to use rituals and restrictions and traditions and symbols to build up false religions that are Christian in name only, that give us a sense of control and certainty and predictability. The way of Christ calls us to actively deconstruct these false religions. To deconstruct what we think it means to be a Christian, to return not to just mere traditions, but to the Word of God, to follow the leading of the Spirit, to reconstruct again and again what it means to be centered on Christ today, in this moment in history, in this community, in this part of the world, for this generation. Don't get me wrong. Rituals and traditions can help us do that. But only if we're willing to stand on them instead of bowing beneath them. When we stand on the shoulders of those and of that which came before, we gain a better view and a bigger picture. But we can't see much from below. And brothers and sisters, the world needs our sight. It would be foolish of us to throw out all that has come before, to tear out the foundation beneath our feet, the foundation of teaching and preaching and sharing life together that we stand on as a church, as PBCC. Yet it would also be foolish of us not to stand tall on that foundation, supported and lifted up by all we've been taught, strengthened by the life and the history etched into these walls and onto our hearts and to look forward, to see farther, and to reach out to the world as it is today, as it comes to us in this generation, and to offer it the new wine of the new covenant. The question is, are our hearts willing to be stretched like new wineskins? Are we willing to be pulled in new directions, or to rethink how we enter into old ones? Are we willing to take new steps forward or to take old steps in a new way? A new way that nevertheless is in step with the Spirit of God, firm on the foundation of his word. Are we willing to deconstruct and reconstruct all over again the way of Christ? Brothers and sisters, what new steps or old steps in new ways is God calling you to take these days? Or is there something that needs to be deconstructed and reconstructed in you? Is there a wineskin in your heart that is starting to feel a bit old, dry, and rigid? God can make it new again. He can stretch out the fear and the hurt. He can soften the frustration and the disappointment and make it new again, new and open to what God has in store for us as we follow the way of Christ together, today. And it's our fellowship on this journey that I would encourage you to think about as we come to the Lord's table. I'd like to invite the praise team to return to the stage and provide for us a space, through the ritual of music, a space for us to do the self-examination. If you look at the packaged elements, for example, if you look at them, the ones that you hopefully picked up as you entered the auditorium. You know, if someone had told me a couple of years ago that we'd be doing communion through pre-packaged elements, a little plastic cup of something vaguely resembling grape juice, you know, flip it over, and there's another little capsule containing a little piece of gluten-free something. If you had told me that this is how we're gonna be taking communion for the foreseeable future, I would have just laughed in your face, but here we are, here we've been. The elements have changed, haven't they? They have changed to accommodate the circumstances we face today to meet us in this moment, in this generation, in this context, in this place. But has the meaning of the meal changed? No. The ritual has changed, but has a heart behind it. I don't think so, brothers and sisters. Not any more than if we were in Korea a hundred years ago and using rice cakes instead of bread. Not any more than if we were in Mexico last week and using tortillas. Rituals and traditions, symbols, these can all change, but may our hearts remain true to the way of Christ and to those who travel it alongside but receive now this benediction. As you go from this place, may the Spirit of God lead you into the liminal spaces, the existential spaces, the spaces of self-reflection and self-examination. May he lead you into those spaces and bring you through to the other side with a clearer view of his goodness, a higher view of his glory and a deeper discernment as to how to bring the new wine of the new covenant into every situation in which we find ourselves. May you be blessed, be well.